Southern Soul Livestream is a weekly talk show and music hangout where the hosts learn your name and just might remind you of a favorite relative. We spotlight fascinating people, discuss current events, and pay special attention to lifting up generations. So if you want to know more, learn more, be more, or just be, Southern Soul Livestream is the place for you. Join us every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Just log on, kick back, and experience the eclectic vibe. Check us out at soullivestream.com. Welcome everyone here tonight, and we're going to get started with our self-publishing for beginners expert, Mrs. Casey. Casey, I am so happy that you're here tonight. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Happy to be here. Yes, yes. And I do apologize for the misbehavior tonight. (laughs) You know, everybody's doing the most. But, you know, I'm excited about tonight, right? Because, you know... We, we talked a few months ago and we we're like, hey, um, you know, we want to do this kind of publishing thing. And I didn't know how we we're going to do it. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I ran into Dr. Green and Dr. Shepard. And then, you know, they had both published books. So I'm like, you know, let's just make it happen. Right. And I'm just really excited to be here tonight. So, you know, let me just tell a few people about you and then we'll get started. Casey Diane, as I think that's your writing name, right? Yeah. A copywriter who had written you know, multiple books. She blogs often, and she's what we have decided to call an entrepreneur, but in addition, a content, digital, and self-publishing entrepreneur. You know, we just figured that out yesterday because she does so much. But, you know, I'm excited, and you know, you have a great story, and we're going to tell it later, but we're just going to jump in and get started. But, um, so... On the topic of self-publishing, tell us about your books and why you decided to publish them. Uh, yeah, I published. So I've always, I always loved to write, and I've always written. Um, I just that is just how I process life in general. Just writing is how I process. Um, but I only started publishing books because I feel like. God was just like tapping me on the shoulder saying that like, I'm not giving you these words. You can put them in a notebook and hide them in your closet for the rest of your life. Like I'm giving you things so you can give it to other people. Um, And so for me, publishing was a lot of just getting over myself. Honestly, I was just like, I'm, I want to keep this for myself. And God's like, that's not for you. Get over it. And just like put it out there. Um, And so for me, publishing was a form of obedience um, and just kind of, because I feel like the introvert in me is just kind of like, let's just all go home and like get in our beds and just like stay there and be happy and like quiet. And God's like, no. Um, so it was very uncomfortable to get started. Um, but then like the more I did it, the less, the less the words felt like mine and the less uncomfortable I felt. It was more like, you know what, this is for the people. So we're just going to we're just going to give it to the people and they can do what they want with it. And so I think when I took myself out of the middle of it, it made it a lot easier to share it with others. And it made it a lot easier to like publish books and put it in a way um, that is digestible to other people. Because I write a lot and publishing makes you kind of go through things with a fine comb and say, like, okay, what is useful for others? Like, what is best to share and what is the best way to do that? Um, what is the best way to tell the story that you're trying to tell? And so I think it's a really good 
it was a really good exercise for me and figuring out like, what is it that I have to share and what is the best way to share it? And, you know, and then you just do it. Once you know what you got to do, you just do it. There's no, can't talk too much about it. Can't think too much about it. You just got to do it. So how long did it take you? Because I know, you know, I, I kind of, you know, laugh a little bit when you say you're introverted because, you know, when I'm thinking about your social persona, you know, athlete, you know, very animated, but I think you may be an introvert like me, right? Because people don't realize I'm an introvert also, right? Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, you can be animated, but have you always been like, I guess, a writer or, you know, because I think you did poetry also, right? I mean, how did you go yeah. from like, poetry and the writing to actually getting yourself out there? Because I don't know, something feels like publishing was a little different. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I started with slam poetry and slam poetry is just like, you have to be like, Slam poetry was uh, a real exercise and just kind of like pushing myself way outside my comfort zone um, because you can't just tell your story. You have to like tell your story. Like your body has to tell your story. Your facial expressions have to tell your story. The way you, the way you use your voice, the way you interact with the audience, like you have to make connections with these people. Um, and also um, it's, it's, it's hard, but like, I kept doing it because the first time I did slam, the first time I did slam poetry, the first time I did spoken word before I, before I was competing. So spoken word is just like, you're talking to the audience, like an open mic night, slam poetry is like a competition. So like when I first started doing spoken word, um, the audience was so lovely to me. Like I was just like, I love y'all now. Um, I just, I hope you know that I'm never leaving. Like the first time I read a poem, I was so sad. I was like, this is life and life is hard. And I'm just like, just a hot mess on the stage. And people are like hugging me. And I'm like, I'm never not going to come back. Like I'm always going to be here. Y'all are my people now. Um, and just, I feel like that's the feeling that I kind of, I don't know, like that's, when I write sometimes, like when I write things that I know other people are gonna read, I think about the audience. I think about like, okay, these are my people. And like, you know, not everyone's gonna love everything that you, not everyone's gonna love everything that you write, but people can feel your heart when you're being honest. People can feel when you're being like transparent and you're being really like, this is who I am. So whether or not they agree with you, people can feel that. And, and so being genuine has always been the center of my writing because like, even if it's not the best, I know that people understand where I'm coming from. Even if I'm like not saying everything as perfectly as I want to say, like genuineness is not something that can be faked. Um, and when I'm writing, I really try my best to be as genuine as possible because that's how you build connections. Um, and then people are a lot more forgiving when they know that you're being like real with them. Um, and that's something that I took from spoken word, just like that honesty and that just like vulnerability of like, I love y'all so much. I'm going to give you all of this, regardless of how unpolished it may seem at times, because like, I think sometimes when we go into the world, we're so used to putting on like a polished face. We're so used to just kind of like plastering on a smile and just acting like things are okay and saying all the right things and being diplomatic and we're we're like, we're trained to be that way. And so I think when somebody's really honest and vulnerable, people like resonate with that because it's, it's something that they're not 
accustomed to seeing on a regular basis. Um, And so when I write, I really am, I'm not diplomatic. That's, that's one complaint I got from her last Monday. She told me she, in my review, she gave me my quarterly review. She's like, you could be a bit more diplomatic. And I was like, I could, it just takes so much effort. It just takes so much effort to be diplomatic all day long. Um, And I just don't have the energy all the time. You know, I I love that story because I love how you jump from a place of comfort, right? I mean, it it wasn't comfortable, like doing probably poetry at home. And then you do um, this, you know, um, slam poetry. And then you get a community that embraces you. And then you keep going. And I love the theme. The theme is that vulnerability, right? And you continue to be vulnerable in your words. And I know that because as I read, you know, your recent book, I can definitely see that. Tell me this. When it comes to self-publishing, you know, you have different mm-hmm. opinions, right? Like, is this a respectable way to kind of publish? What do you think? You know, is, it was it. Did you consider it respectful as you know, like, was it a respectful way of publishing? Excuse me, as compared to a traditional way of publishing. What's your take on it? I think there are levels to it. I think, um, I think if you try to do everything yourself and you're not well versed in everything, then it shows. Um, but I think if you take the time to um, get the help that you need, like I, I edit other people's work, but I could never edit my own work because I know what I'm trying to say. So I would just, my brain would just skip over all the mistakes because my brain's like, she means to say X, Y, and Z. Um, and so for me, when I publish, I have to have an editor who's kind of like, I know what you're trying to say, but you're not saying that. And who will like hold you accountable to have good work. Um, and then even with formatting, um, I do formatting for other people. And so formatting took a long time for me to understand because when we read a book, we're so used to seeing a high quality book and knowing what it's supposed to look like. So when you see a book that's not high quality, you can just tell. Even if you can't tell why it's not high quality, you can tell that it's not how it's supposed to be. Um, and so either you take the time to learn it and it takes a long time to learn it or you hire somebody who knows what it's supposed to look like so that way it's not a distraction and in my opinion when you're writing you don't want any distractions from your writing i like the way you describe that because the word self-publishing would make a person think you do everything right and and that's kind of the misleading thing because i guess you have to figure out what you're good at and what you're not good at right so when you say formatting, you know, what, what is formatting? Because I'm pretty sure Katie would love this part. What, what for the people in the audience, what is formatting and why is it so important? Like formatting is basically the way that the book is presented. Like when you see a back cover. So for example, I had somebody do my cover one time. I hired somebody off of Fiverr and I could tell they didn't know what they were doing because the back cover was a hot mess. Um, and I had to end up redoing it. But it's just like, the way that it's aligned, the, the indentions, the way the photo is, like they're all, it's done with intention. Um, and so when I hired somebody, I hired somebody off Fiverr and they did not do the job, but the, the indentions were all wrong. The, like everything was like formatted to the left and it was just not aligned and the picture was not centered. Like it was just, it looked bad. And I had a hard time kind of explaining to him why it looked bad because like technically all the pieces were there like the bio was there, the picture was there, the information was there, but it wasn't formatted in a way that was pleasing to the eye. It wasn't formatting in a way that people are accustomed to seeing a back cover. And so 
when you're doing stuff like that, you have to know what's expected. So that way people aren't distracted by it. Because if someone looks at your book and if someone looks at your book and they're distracted and they're not focused on the content anymore, they're focused on what's wrong with it. They're trying to figure out like, why is this not right? Like what's like, what, what's wrong with it? You know? Also, you know, you know, pretty sure Katie reads like hundreds of books, right? So I'm pretty sure if she picked up a self-published book that seems a little bit off center, she's going to know it and she's not going to even give it a chance. Yeah. Which was a, which is a, the key point, right? I mean, yeah. I think what you told me before is that it seems it comes off kind of cheap, right? It's yeah. like I'm just not right there, right? And but I don't know. So tell me this. Yeah. This is my big question. This is like when people begin to publish, the question they're always thinking: How much does it cost? When am I going to make money? When am I going to profit? Right? Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts about that? Uh, my thoughts are: Get your expectations in check. Um, unless you have a large audience who is waiting to buy your book, you're probably not going to make a lot of money. Um, I've been, I took like a course just to kind of, I really wanted to fine tune like what I was doing and what my expectations were and just like how to be good at it. Um, and the biggest thing I learned during that was when you are self-publishing in particular, like people use, even with traditional publishing there, it's, it's a means to an end at some point. Like, unless you are like a career writer and like all you've written a bunch of books, you will probably make a decent amount of money if you write a bunch of books and then you have a lot of people buying your books, but then you'll have to be out there for a while. You have to have generated that audience where they're expecting a book from you and they know that they're going to buy from you. But if you're starting out, um, or if you're writing for a specific thing, a lot of people use it as a marketing tool for their business and to just kind of use it as a point of credibility. They're like, I know what I'm talking about. I wrote this book. If you want to know what I think about X, Y, and Z, it's in this book. So you can check out to know what I'm talking about. It's kind of like, it, it really is to build credibility. Um, and as for me, as a writer, and as a copywriter, I use my books to say, I finish things. Like I know how to write. You can read my book to see if you question if I can write or not read the book and judge me all you want. That's why it's there. Um, and I can finish a project. And when I say that I will finish things for you, I know that you know that I will finish things for you because I finish things for myself. Um, and so I think it's a tool, like when you're writing and you're self-publishing, it's a tool um, and it's best used in combination with whatever business that you're selling, like whatever service or product that you're selling, it's a tool that's kind of like, amplifies that and builds credibility awesome thank you you know and i like the way you describe that right you say it's a marketing tool Mm -hmm. and what i love about a marketing tool is that it can be considered a business expense it is as an expense you have to budget and determine hey how much do i want to spend on this marketing tool Mm -hmm. based on the roi of what i plan to build long term Yeah, I can imagine from a personal project to something much more, but go ahead. Yeah, I think you have to begin with the end in mind when you're writing a book. You have to think about why am I writing this? Who am I writing it for? What is my goal of this book? Like typically when I write a book, a lot of my stuff is autobiographical. So I'm writing it because I will write it regardless. I'm going to write this book because the words just 
pour out my face and I have to catch them and just like make them pretty so other people will read them. But um, as far as combining it with like the copy editing that I do and the copywriting that I do, um, I also use it as a tool to say like, I do know what I'm talking about. I do know how to go through this whole process. So when someone comes to me and they're like, can you help me with my book? I'm like, yes, I can. Let me show you the books that I finished for myself so that you know that I can help you finish yours. And so for me, I use it as a way to show like, I do know, I do know what I'm talking about. Um, but if someone was say a doctor, I, 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 one of my clients was a doctor and she wanted to kind of showcase um, like her experience. She wanted to show like, I've worked with this many patients. I have helped this many patients in this area. And I wanna just kind of showcase that to, you know, potential patients because she was um, private practice. And so it was a really fun experience of saying, okay, so what stories catch people the most? Like what, what stories will really touch people and make them trust you and make them want to make them relate to you? And so it's, it was a tool. It was like, okay, these are the stories that matter. These are the stories that really like never left me. These are the patients that like touched me and just did not leave. And I want to document them because I, they mean so much to me. Like it's, um, but I think once you know what you're trying to say and once you know why you're trying to say it, it makes it a lot easier to write the book because I feel like a lot of people can write a book. A lot of people have things to say. A lot of people have like worthy things to share with others. Um, and it's just all about narrowing that down so that way you can convey a clear message. So when people read your book, they get what you're trying to say and they don't have to wonder, you're just telling them. You know, I, I love that. And if you would hang tight, because what we're going to do is we're going to come back for discussion for the people who um, want to do Q&A. We're going to, okay. um, you know, after we have Dr. Green and Dr. Shepard, they're going to, you know, speak, they're going to speak on their books. And at the end, we're going to have questions. But before we transition to that, I want to ask one last question. As you know, we're using this um, show to kick off our publishing club. And how do you think, you know, well, first, we, we need you to be a part of the publishing club. So, you know, that's your invite. But mm -hmm. how do you feel that it's important for writers and publishers or future people who want to self-publish books? How do you think they would benefit from a publishing club or a community in which they begin to write together? Yeah, accountability, just straight up accountability. Um, back when I was doing spoken word, we used to have like um, like writer circles. I don't know if that's if they still call it that, but um, we would just get together and we would write and then we would share with our we would share our work with others and they would we would take the critique and the critique really helped strengthen the work because um, it's a really useful tool to hear what other people are hearing when you're speaking, like when you're writing something, because I feel like in our heads, a lot of times we have a good idea of what we're trying to say, but it doesn't always translate to the page. And so when you're writing something and then you share it with somebody else and they read it and they're like, um, I mean, you're missing, like they can tell you where there's a disconnect and they can tell you where you need to strengthen something. They can tell you when something's not clear. And so having a group of people who have the same goal and you're helping each other to like build that accountability and close those gaps, it's it's really, really valuable. Um, and so I think it's a, a worthwhile endeavor for sure. 
Well, well, thank you, because I'm definitely looking forward to it. And so um, for the people who are here tonight, um, after the show, we're going to do a survey. And after the survey, feel free to let us know if you want to participate in the um, publishing club. And we'll definitely keep you posted. So, Casey, Diane, thank you. Dr. Shepard, can you hear us okay? I hear you just fine. Good to be with you tonight. Awesome, awesome. Well, gentlemen, thank you for being here tonight. And, you know, I'm just going to jump in, right? Because I'm going to let you guys, and um, I'm going to jump into the questions. I'm going to kind of let you guys introduce yourself. Um, I typically would read the bios, but I'm not going to do that. So if you don't mind, Dr. Green, if you don't mind going first and kind of giving us, you know, your, you know, 60-second overview of who you are, what you do, and that would be great. And just feel free to give a shout-out because I know you invited students family members and friends. So thank you all for being here tonight. Yeah, well, first of all, I just want to thank you for having a vision to put this together. So man, so uh, just a little bit of myself. I'm originally from, uh, I'm originally from Shreveport, Louisiana. Shout out to Southern University. I graduated in mechanical engineering. Uh, met my wife there, Estrelita. Uh, we have uh, three, we've been married for 33 years and I have three uh, three kids, spent 27 years uh, working in the Department of Energy, managing non-nuclear nuclear, uh, projects. And God brought me to Oklahoma Baptist University where I'm, I'm teaching uh, young minds. And I'm just I'm just glad to be here. And I'm very excited to, to get going. Awesome, awesome. Thank you, Dr. Green. Dr. Shepard. Yes, uh, just as uh, Dr. Green said, I am delighted to be here and thank you for pulling this together and thanks for extending the opportunity to tune in. Um, I am originally from a small town in North Carolina called Garner, North Carolina, that sits about three miles outside of Raleigh. I uh, was born there and grew up there. Uh, graduated from St. Augustine's uh, University with a BS degree in chemistry, uh, Falcon Pride. And uh, from there, I came up to Howard University to do my master's and PhD in physical organic chemistry. Bison pride. So all of my work was done at historically black colleges and universities. And I spent my early part of my career with the federal government. And as we will, you will learn about me as we go forth tonight, I only spent uh, about 11 years working with the federal government out of my 40 year career. About 29 years of my career was working for myself. And a quarter of a century of that was with a nonprofit. I'm delighted to be here. And I'll say now that I'm really anxious to hear the questions from the audience, especially as it relates to the topic we are supposed to be discussing. And that is uh, retirement. And that's mm -hmm. something that is very, very important. And I'm quite sure it's on the minds of many of the listeners. Mm -hmm. Let me too also thank all of uh, my colleagues who mm -hmm. we extended invitations to. And, mm -hmm. and I can see this with us tonight. Thank you very much. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Shepard. Newly retired. Now what? I mean, you know, Dr. Green, when I first started thinking about this topic, I'm in this season where, you know, I'm watching, you know, my, 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 my parents get to that point and, and I'm, I'm, I'm watching, I'm an observer, right? And I'm watching and I'm seeing these question marks, right? This retirement, it's supposed to be, um, I don't know, the, the next frontier. Some people call it the final frontier. But what I'm seeing is as we step into this, these, these question marks and these, these things that people may not 
maybe a little, just say, hard to just talk about. Let's say that. So as you say, Dr. Green, the internet works. So I said, you know what? I'm gonna have to find somebody who can talk about this. And I found you, but let's go ahead and get started. You know, if you haven't told me, well, actually you already did that. So let's go ahead. Tell me, retirement has been considered, you know, the, 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 the big day, right? You go through planning, you go through retirement, you go through the honeymoon phase. And then I can tell it's inevitable, the disenchantment phase. Tell me, did you experience any of these phases? And if so, please share with the audience what you experienced and what it looked like for you. So, so that's a great, great question. I retired at 50. I retired early. And I, I just think uh, I was a hunger. I was uh, making a lot of money uh, in uh, working in Tennessee. And uh, I was still not really satisfied. I, I was seeing people, senior executives retire, especially Afro-Americans. Uh, they'd be bitter. They'd be mad. They'd be upset. And so I started going back to school. I went back to school to get my master's degree, still wanted to get more. And someone mentioned about maybe uh, I was at a time working at Knoxville College. I was doing some adjunct work. And so I, they said, why don't you start thinking about pursuing uh, an academic career full time? And so at, at some point, I think I got a revelation uh, that I really wasn't going into retirement. I, I, some of you are not biblical people, but I, I kind of uh, I kind of thought about Moses uh, when Moses was forty. He left. Uh, he had a job. Uh, he he left and he and he and he toured in the wilderness. And God called him back at eighty. And so what I've been doing, trying to climb the corporate ladder, that really that was not God's purpose for me. He was just preparing me for a job to work to to work with students. And so uh, as as a uh, uh, Dr. Shepard or Robert, uh, he, he's really my, one of my mom, uh, my mentors, is that really I'm not talking about retire, retirement right now because uh, I would say in October, about 4.3 million people left their job as a record. And so just because of the pandemic, people are really rethinking this. And so really I'm, I'm just transitioning to a different, a different career. And maybe I don't ever retire, but it's, I, I call it repositioning. But uh, for me, it's very exciting. I left at a, I left at a time where I was transitioning to a new career and a new opportunity. So, so, so it's just different than my dad. Uh, my dad, uh, he had worked 30, 40 years. And, and once he got through with that job, he had crossed that line. He had that party. My dad had, didn't have a sense of purpose. So I think you can, and that's why I wrote the book, Mapping Out Your Life After Retirement. I meet so many retirees, they don't have a sense of purpose. And I think that is really the, the, the key point I want to stress out. Retirement is not the end. Uh, it, it, it should be the beginning. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Green. And I know, sorry about the formalities, right? I just want to stay there for tonight. Okay. Dr. Shepard, I enjoyed reading your background, reading. Um, you have a book teaser and it tells your story. So I definitely want you to tell people a little bit about your career and your achievements. Because when I began to look at it, I was like, OMG, thank you, Dr. Green, for bringing Dr. Shepard here. Because this man is blessed and he has so much experience and so many things to share with us. So Dr. Shepard, if you don't mind telling us, the audience, for the people who haven't met you before, they don't know your background, tell us about your career, tell us about your achievements, and then tell us about your retirement. 
All right, I told you about my career in terms of 40 years. My active career was 40 years in the marketplace, 29 of which I was on my own, ending up with a nonprofit that I formed on K Street here in Washington, DC. And my advocacy work and my life's work then and now has been to advocate for the inclusion of historically black colleges and universities in the federal government's multi-billion dollar research enterprise. I mean the mainstream funds of the federal government. I do not talk about set-asides. I do not talk about outreach dollars. I'm talking about the main research dollars that go to the majority universities. I did that during my career when I was on the payroll for other people. And that's what I do today. Uh, Daryl, I appreciate you using my term reposition uh, because uh, that's what I said to him years ago. Mm -hmm. Retirement is not in my language. It's not in my vocabulary. I just simply reposition, but I think I need to define what I mean when I say reposition. Mm -hmm. Reposition means that you just take something and move it from where it once was to somewhere else. That's exactly what I did. I moved myself from running an organization that I had formed. I had a staff, I had a payroll, I had an office, I had a lease, all of those things. And what I, when I repositioned, I dropped that and just slid right over into the new things that I do, continually uh, advocating for historically black colleges and universities. Uh, you asked me about achievements. I hope that my greatest achievement has been a husband, mm -hmm. a father, grandfather, uncle, and brother. I, I, I hope that that's my greatest achievement. But outside my family, I am an enabler. Mm -hmm. And by enabler, today's term, they would call it an influencer. But I've always been an enabler and what I do with that is I inspire, motivate, encourage young people, and especially students, on their educational and personal journey. And so when you ask me about life after retirement, uh, Calvin, no, there is no life after retirement because I talk about repositioning, and repositioning is something that I've done for a long period of time uh, to, to give you some parameters, to give you some parameters, I started my career in 1973 when I came out of Howard with my PhD and I shut down my operation on K Street in 2013. Those are the 40 year span of time. And for these other eight years, I'm still doing what I normally do. For example, last year, the National Science Foundation, knowing that I don't have a, a, a company with an EIN number, employee identification number, they know I don't have any of those uh, governmental codes, but they still came to ask me if I could facilitate uh, the introduction of one of their large research programs that's getting started. Could I introduce that to the HBCU community? And I said, I can, but I'm not gonna do any heavy lifting. And they said, you don't have to, we're going to do it. And by them doing that, what I was able to do was to bring 55 faculty members and graduate students to a webinar just like we're having today representing 26 HBCUs. 
And from that, those HBCUs are doing some phenomenal research and writing brand new grants. And I did that, uh, Calvin, in my reposition in my state that I operate out now. And I'm gonna stop right there because again, I want us to have enough time to hear from the audience in terms of what their needs are so that we can address those as best we can. Awesome, thank you, thank you, Dr. Shepard. You know, I'm loving that term reposition. You know, because, you know, Dr. Green used it, you use it. You know, doing my research, I heard it so clearly that I went and researched it. And since I have a business background, when I looked at that term reposition in a business context, it happens when you have a brand that's kind of, you know, like Cadillac, right? It used to mean something, then it evolves. Nike, it used to mean something, then it evolved. So then what you have to do is say, let me reposition how people use these products or view these products so that we continue to have more impact. And I love how you described it and I love your experience. I mean, I am a fan because as I begin to go through your bio, I begin to really appreciate the phenomenal work that you have done. So tell me this, on the topic of publishing, both of you gentlemen have published books. What do you think about how Casey Diane introduced the topic of self-publishing? Did you have any of these experiences or what have you experienced that could have been different from what she experienced? Dr. Green, if you don't mind going first. So uh, I think Casey was, she was right on. Uh, so I actually have written uh, about 70, 70 books or plus eBooks, books and stuff. And I have uh, two, uh, two uh, textbooks that are, that are by a, a textbook publisher. I go back, I always like uh, controlling my faith. And so, uh, like she said, I, I contract most of my stuff out uh, when I when I do it. An academic an academic world, they don't like that. But I just think having control of your life is important. Being an owner uh, is is very important to me, and it's it's it's, it's uplifting when I, uh, Dr. Shepard has has helped uh, many people in getting their books published. I just think it, I just think there's something there's so so much freedom with with, with doing it. So I'm an advocate for that. Uh, matter of fact, uh, I used to do uh, used to do conference, writing conferences, and and basically what has happened is that the large publishers are waiting until these self publishers uh, make it big, and then they offer them a, a contract. But just like MC Hammer, you got to know what your worth is. I know my worth, and so no one's going to come to that. Not I, I use it from a standpoint of of position myself. When I when I wrote my first book, my cup ran all the seven goals for single parents and working couples. The focus was, was helping those single parents and working couples balance work and family. I was an engineer, but you know, uh, at work in an engineering in an engineering organization, I had I had my coworkers coming up to me, asking me about how to do that. I was able to get on BT. Uh, we called it USA Today. That one book, I'm going to use Dr. Shepard's term. It repositioned me. To be an expert in that field, and that's and I think that's so important in branding, being able to repositioning. So I think uh, writing a book is one of the ways you become an expert instantaneously because people still have uh, a fantasy or respect uh, for authors. Awesome, awesome, Dr. Shepard. I want to go to you next, but what I want to do is ask you a two-part question. So one is on the publishing of your book, but your book is on a different topic. And Dr. Green, we're going to talk about your book next. Dr. Shepard, your book is titled Fulfilling My Destiny, Step 
by step. Tell us about your experiences in publishing and tell us about this book. Yes, okay. Um, yes, fulfilling my destiny step by step. How I came to that was uh, uh, just looking at my life's journey from the tobacco fields of North Carolina to what God had poured into me and allowed me to do globally as a little old country boy from North Carolina. And so, but as I, as I processed it, it looked like it was in steps. It was in steps. Every stretch of my life was in steps. And as I stopped and processed that step, I began to see what was unfolding in front of my eyes. And, and I wanted to tell my story. I, I, it was important to me to pen my story because I personally had elderly gentlemen at church who I loved to sit at their feet. And in sitting at their feet, I found that in our church, we had some mighty, powerful African-American black men who had contribute, contributed mightily to this nation and to the world. And I would ask them, well, who knows this? Who knows this other than you and I? They would say, well, uh, Brush Shepherd, I, I told my children, I, I think, but I don't know if they remember. I, I said, but did you write it down? And they said, no, I didn't write it down. And then when I stood over the casket of two particular people I have in mind right now, and I looked down at them and thought of all of the conversations that we had about the contributions they made. I asked God right then, do not let me leave here with what you have poured into me. Don't let my light be hid under a bushel. And that got me to work. And I will give credit to uh, my good friend, uh, Dr. Green, because how I even began to write, there's another gentleman on this screen tonight that I got to call his name as well, because he's been my spiritual counselor and advisor for over 35, going on 40 years, and that's Dr. Hiawatha Fountain. And I was on a panel in 2010 at North Carolina A&T for the Department of Energy. I made my presentation at the end of my presentation, like what had happened in many of my presentations at sessions like that. There was a, a line that had formed and they were just standing waiting to get a chance to talk to me and ask me questions and things like that. Dr. Green was the last person in that line. That man was looking at me so intently until I couldn't hardly concentrate on the people in front of me addressing their questions. And I was getting nervous because it's a time where people shoot people and <laughs> people kill. So I'm asking myself, I'm trying to answer their questions, but I'm asking myself in the back of my mind, what did I say that's causing that man to keep looking at me like this? When he finally inched his way up to me, he looked me in the eyes and asked me this question, show me your book. Oh, my heart, I, I, just, I just came down because I was just thankful. I started laughing. I said, oh, I said, if you just realize how many people have asked me about a book, I said, uh, yeah, yeah, I get, he was not smiling. He said, he reached down in his briefcase and pulled out that book that he just mentioned, his first book. He said, here's my book and I'm still working. He said, here's my website. The next time we cross paths, I want you to present to me the book you've written. 
I had never had an experience like that before. And when I left North Carolina A&T and got to the airport, I sat down and called my good friend, Dr. Fountain, who had been pestering me for about 10 years to write my book, write my story. I called him and told him, I said, I met a man who I can't dance around it any longer. I said, I will start writing my book. And on that line, he began to pray for me. Let me just say this to the audience because I'm, I'm, I'm anxious to hear from them. And that's this, there's something about writing. There's something about writing that can take you into places and build a network for you that you can't imagine. Uh, in 1989, when Abdul Jabbar retired, six-time champion from the Los Angeles Lakers, in his autobiography, he said, I, I'm just afraid. I don't know what to do. I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. He began to write. The writing opened up the world far beyond basketball. And today, um, he has 19 books that he's written. I encourage you that if you're, if, you're, if you're spinning your wheels and you don't know what you can do, just start writing and writing from the heart. And if you do that, I think that you'll find that uh, it'll open some doors that you have not uh, uh, thought about. And found point, since Daryl mentioned Moses and God's use of Moses at 80, God used Noah at 600. He was 500 years old when God took the word to him that I want you to build an ark. He was 600 years old when he began building the ark and it took him 120 years to finish it. Why do I go there? I go there because if anybody is thinking that there is an age situation that I'm too old, I, I, I've, I, I, I didn't get started early enough. It's never too late to start pinning your story. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Awesome, awesome, Dr. Shepard. I am going to transition to Q&A. And we had a last question, but we're going to pull that in Q&A. So this is a good time for the audience to begin to say what's on their mind. We have two topics that we're covering tonight. And I'll tell you why I introduced the topic of self-publishing. Because when you retire, there's so much you could do. Writing a book is only one. We won't talk about the other 100 things you can do in retirement. Writing a book is one, and we thank Casey Diane for helping us understand what that means. Dr. Green for helping us understand what that means. Dr. Shepard for sharing that word, repositioning. And I agree with um, Dr. Green because as I begin to review your book, I haven't purchased it yet, but when I begin to look at your teaser, there was a story in your story that inspired me. And it has something to do when you got your first patent. And on that first job, where they were setting traps for you. And you went and used the experience that your father had gave you to fix a solution for a high chemical nuclear reactor, something, something. That not only saved your job, but pioneered your career. Some 30 to 40 years later, I step into other scenarios in a whole different company. Hmm. And I'd be like, yep, they've been setting traps for a long time. And by you sharing your story, it helps me to see the importance of me sharing my story because the people who come after us need to know what these traps look like so that they don't step into it. But let's go to the audience. Audience, what, what do we, let me hear from you. 
who we got who's anxious who got some questions who want to talk and there's two ways to do this you can put your question in the chat or you can take yourself off mute and you can ask your question directly we give two options because you have different types of people some people like one some people like the other kd tamika what do we got How about that? While they're pulling together the question, I'm going to ask this question to give the audience a chance to type their questions in the chat and think about them. So gentlemen, let's talk about legacy. How would you like your grandchildren to describe you to their children? Dr. Green. Oh, this is an easy one. <laughs> uh, wow. They may see all the achievements and all the accomplishments and all the notes I wanted to say that was a child that uh, that my granddaddy was a child of God, and he tried to help everybody he could in the world. Amen. Thank you. How about well, you? I, I, yeah, I, I, I thought Daryl was going to talk longer than that so that I could get my <laughs> thoughts together. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I'm like Daryl. Uh, I, I couldn't be sitting where I'm sitting now without... Uh, having had God in my life then and now. I was a little foolish back then. I didn't know the degree to which he was in my life. You have to get a little older to know the degree that he was in your life. But God, I would want my grandchildren, I would want my children to say to uh, their children about their grandfather that they didn't meet that he was, he was a fun guy, that's number one. He was a, fun, he was a funny man, he was serious, but he was funny. And that he was a man that enjoyed life. He absolutely enjoyed life. He was an independent thinker and uh, you would have enjoyed just getting to know him because with all of that uh, laughter and fun that you would find in him, whenever a teachable moment came into play, he put the brakes on and we got serious. We had to do these things. In fact, so that you can get a better glimpse of who your grandfather really was, uh, I want you to read all of his books that he's written because when you finish reading his books, uh, we're gonna talk some more, but you'll have a good understanding of who your father, grandfather was. Uh, that's sort of like what I would hope my legacy would be. Awesome, awesome. Now I have a pre-submitted discussion question to Mika and Katie while you guys grab question. So this is a retirement question. How do you prepare for the possible lack, initial lack of structure in your daily life at that first point of retirement? <clears throat> well, that's a, that's a great question. I, uh, Many of the older people that I that's older than me, they always have something to do. I think uh, in my dad's case, uh, my father, you know, he had a lot of structure. He was a he was a janitor for the library over thirty years, and he had a structure. And I would say uh, when he retired, he was in the back. He was in our backyard in Shreveport, Louisiana, kicking up kicking up the uh, leaves in our backyard. And I think that he had no sense of purpose. So I, I do think having a structure, like I said, this whole thing about repositioning, as Dr. Shepard said, I'm I'm constantly busy. I got I got a meeting at eight or nine o'clock tomorrow. So uh, I just think you have to you have to plan that. And I just want to mention an exit strategy in my book. I talk about having an exit strategy. 
it's important to have it laid out, uh, get a financial planner, do all that stuff ahead of time. And in my book, I, I list about a hundred ways of things that you can do, you know, be a quilter, be a writer, but you need to you need to think about those things before you before you get retired. I I, I personally think, but it's it's never too late. Yeah, let's let's talk about that book because we were moving fast and we didn't get a chance to talk about that book. Okay. Your book is entitled "Mapping Out Life After Retirement." Tell us why you wrote this book, right? And who you wrote it for? I like what Casey okay. Diane said. You know, you're writing a book. You got to ask yourself why, right? You're writing this book. Why did you write this? Book? And I think Tamika's already put it in the chat. Tell us about your book, Doctor Green. So I, I, I appreciate that. So uh, I, I believe it's not by chance, but I, uh, being a young guy in the organization, I used to see people uh, retire. And a lot of times they retire. Some of them get sick. Uh, some, some, some people die. And I just saw there was a lot of unfulfillment. And then on the other end, you got, uh, I got my coworkers. They hate their job. And, uh, you know, and some of them will continue to work and so, like I said, I talked about my dad. And so I just thought, they said, man, how in the world you do all the things you do? And so I'm a list guy, I'm an engineering processing person. And so I kind of wrote it down, some things. I saw some people who were uh, like, they were civil engineers, but they were, they were also uh, cooks, great cooks, but their, their bosses tell, were telling them, you know what, you don't need to do that. That It's a dead end job. And kind of discouraging, discouraging individuals. So I just say, you need to identify what your what your abilities are, what your what your enjoyment or your passions are, and, and focus on that. And so that's why I thought the book would be be, be very for helpful for those that just are thinking about retirement, and also those that are saying, you know what, I'm I'm in I'm uh, sixty something. I don't really know what to do. And uh, can you give me some tips? So I think I think it kind of helps both both parties out uh, because I think if you don't, there's a book. Book, uh, his name uh, in search of uh, it was a guy named Victor France uh, Frank, and he was in a concentration camp. It was like the book was like 1940s, and the only way that he kept going while other people died was a sense of purpose. And I believe that if you don't have a sense of purpose, then 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 you won't you won't make it. Awesome, awesome. You know, you've used that word a few times tonight, and I now understand what you mean is that 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 drive, and and I do believe you know some people call it that purpose driven life, right? And it's that purpose, right? That passion, I, I call it. So um, while we wait for um, questions, Tamika, um, Katie, what you got? There's a question. They're very interested in knowing what uh, Dr. Shepard's trap was that was set for him. <laughs> now, Dr. Shepard, you want to tell that story? I call it a trap. You know, that's my personification interpretation. You, you know what I'm referring to? You want to tell uh, it? Of course, of course. I know exactly what you're referring to. And I'm glad you used the term trap. Because as the first black PhD scientist in that organization, I thought about it as a trap for one nanosecond. And the reason I couldn't stay there was because they were not going to take me out of that laboratory. So what I did was, and oh, let me tell you what the situation was. I was hired as the first black PhD scientist in this organization to head this X-ray diffraction and atomic absorption laboratory. Well, two weeks into the job, uh, a health physicist for the state of North Carolina came to survey my laboratory. And the report he wrote was that the scattered radiation in that lab was so high that it was affecting my, uh, it was a potential danger to my employees. I had two lab technicians 
and all visitors coming in my laboratory. And so the ruling by the state of North Carolina was that this needed to be repaired and fixed and fixed within 60 days. Well, as a new employee, I had just gotten there. Uh, that nanosecond, uh, Kevin, of, of thinking it was a fix, I immediately sat down to my desk and said, I have been trapped because these people knew that this lab was contaminated and they brought me in here. But I paused just for a moment and I said, okay, Lord, where would I go from here? And he told me to touch bases with another one of my Howard colleagues that had come out of chemistry who was heading a laboratory at uh, Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati. I called uh, my, my colleague and he said, uh, Bob, sell down, he said, sell down. He said, let me share my story with you when I got to Procter & Gamble. He said, when I got to Procter & Gamble, within one month, there was a violent explosion in the Kansas City laboratory that rocked the whole plant. And so Bob, guess who they selected to go and re-back calculate and find out what was the chemical reaction that caused that explosion to happen? He said, they sent me, so I didn't have time to worry about it. I solved the problem. And what I did caused the whole Procter & Gamble organization to change how they were running those processes in all of their plans. So he said, go ahead and solve the problem. And I did, I solved the problem and I solved it based on uh, what my father had, had done. And he was a third grade educated man. Uh, I they sent me to Atlanta to the company that made the instrument that was having the, the, the scattered radiation leak uh, problem. And when I got there, they had uh, uh, a design that was about $10,000. And I was sketching out some thoughts on the back sheet of paper saying that you don't need to pay no $10,000. My daddy wouldn't pay $10,000 to repair this. And I think I can repair it. And I was supposed to go to a second meeting the next day, but I told the company I was heading back. I got on the plane and went back and I convinced my company that my design, which cost only $500 that was made by the um, the design organization, the drafting organization, put it on the machine and it worked just like new. And what Calvin is talking about is at that age at 25 years old, I didn't know anything about intellectual capital. But when that company began to bring the president of the instrument making company, they would come through my lab and they claimed that they wanted to show these people who their young scientist was that was solving these problems. But as I stood back and watched all of this, that's when I began to grow a little bit in my understanding because I said, there is something bigger to this than just uh, people showing my design. And when they asked me to publish it and take it out of patent review, it was pretty clear to me that I had lost a major opportunity to uh, possibly uh, reap some benefits that I never would reap otherwise. So that's what you're talking about, uh, uh, Calvin. Yes. Yeah, and, and and I love that story because, you know, and 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 I love Dr. Shepard's, you know, humility, his humbleness, right? You can tell he's in the Bible, he's in the Word. What I see is a young person directly out of college, up against a whole organization, institution, system, trying to essentially. As he, as he told me when we were talking, if one his dad told him, if one man put it together, another man can um, take it apart, is that 
he essentially find his own solution. But at that young age, come on, we barely know how to, you know, get out of bed in the morning at that age. But to begin to use what his dad taught him allowed him to navigate that trap, which I also see as the theme of what we're talking about as we begin to document our stories and share our stories. Because when I began to see your story, it instantly connected with my story and it was just so, so valuable. So I just want to kind of say that out loud because that's why I was excited about tonight. But that's enough talk because I try not to talk too much, y'all. Let me let me add to that, Kevin, just one mm -hmm. thing because it ties into uh, uh, Dr. Green's book. Uh, one, I sent some questions out to colleagues asking them, who, who recently retired, are you bored? Are you doing anything that uh, makes you feel like you're doing something meaningful? Uh, and if you're not, then why not? Uh, uh, do you think you're going to have to return back to work to supplement your pension, summarize a day? And I got some phenomenal responses from my colleagues, and that's why I've been pushing very hard to get to the um, Q&A. But one of my colleagues, one said, no, no problem. Hey, both said financially, nope. Go back to work? Absolutely not. But what I found in their responses was a lot of attention had been paid to the retirement plan to make sure that financially they would be okay. But where one had fallen down is that, and he said in his response to me, uh, Bob, no, I didn't give any thought to that. And as a result, I'm struggling. And therefore what I'm looking for tonight, Bob, out of this session is the following. I, let me, I this is worth uh, saying exactly what he wants verbatim. I hope you guys can offer tonight is a methodology or technique that I can use to begin to sort this out because the things he's talking about sorting out is he said, haven't found that horse I want to saddle and ride. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Green, I think I thank you for laying that book structure out. I'd forgotten about that because I think that is the methodology and strategy that this person can use. Uh, to be able to put some pieces together. That's awesome. And Dr. Green did actually give me a copy of his book to give away. So I'm thinking about two people to give that book tonight. And just, just don't do just just don't do name that tune. Just don't do name that tune. <laughs> uh, so, so ma'am, we do have a couple of questions. Go ahead. What, what question do we have? Well, the first one is actually a comment and we've got um, a high school student that's on here with us. And one of the comments that she made, and this is directed to Dr. Shepard, um, was that she felt like you would make a great um, speaker to high school students. And we're wondering, do you speak to high school students? I know you speak to older students and older people, but what about high schoolers? Yes, I do. I speak to high school students as well. Uh, last year or year before the pandemic, I was asked to come to Richmond uh, to speak to a group of high school students there. So yes, I do. Okay. And I, I just I just want to throw this in. If you get a chance, uh, TED Talks. Uh, uh, Dr. Shepard did a phenomenal, incredible TED Talk at Howard University. And uh, I don't know if he's going to share that, but if you could find that, Google it. It was amazing. I'm actually trying to get get him to come to my my school. It was simply a uh, Man blowing. If you get a chance to to, to catch that, 
Yeah, Tamika, if you don't mind sharing that, um, if you Google his name in TED Talks, you'll it's actually TEDx Howard University. You, if you can share that in the chat. And actually, this show is going to be published two weeks from now on a Friday. So you guys will be able to get a replay and share from that. And all of the links from tonight is going to be shared there also. Um, additional question um, while we wait for the audience. So, and this is for both you guys. Oh, sorry, there was another question? Yeah, I did have two. Okay, go ahead, keep going. Um, there is a question from Ren Collins. Um, Ren asked if, if, if you recommended that people keep a structured routine until they find their purpose. What are your thoughts on that? Hmm. So I think I think that's hard to. I think it depends on the individual. Some some people need like my kids. Some people need structure, while some uh, some people need 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 that uh, fluency. Uh, in my personal, I think if you have some kind of structure, it might be helpful. But it just kind of depends. Doctor Shepard, what do you what do you think on that? Well, first of all, you gave me an opportunity to say this. Uh, everybody does not approach retirement the same way. We're talking tonight as if everybody on this screen would be interested in doing something after they retire. Mm -hmm. I know some people that said, hey, I worked for 30 years, 35 years, 40 years in a structured environment. Don't come and ask me to do anything. I'm doing what I want to do, which is absolutely nothing. But then they say, but if I choose to do something, I'll do it. So let's let's get that straight. So, but for those who are interested in doing something other than kicking the tin can down the road, uh, yes, for a person like me, structure was built in, in me in the sense that I found early in my career that um, uh, 24 hours in a day was a lot of time. And I found that only 65% of my time was really needed to do my job that I was being paid to do, what I was on payroll to do. I found that 65% of my time was needed. And in fact, when I got to be an expert in running the analysis in my laboratory, that percentage went down. So I began to ask myself as a young man, what am I gonna do with all of this time that I got left over? Mm -hmm. And I had already turned off the TV. I'd already stopped reading other people's material. I had stopped reading newspapers. So I looked and saw I had all of these time, this time. So what I did was created uh, my first business in my basement. And my first business is what turned into my real corporation that was established on K Street. 10 years, I, I labored at, at trying to frame and give structure to what was in my heart, still centered around HBCUs, mm -hmm. but it expanded somewhat to incorporate Africa as well. So when I pulled all of this together, sent it to the United Nations for their department to take a look at it, it was clear to me when they sent me to Africa for three consecutive years as a representative for them to work with their scientists on pulling thoughts together, then I knew that I was onto something and I just had to wait for God. I had to wait patiently to God create the avenue for me to go out and set it up. Daryl, what I would say is for those who need structure, just try to figure out how to just take, take something and write it down. I, I believe it's gotta be written first, write it down and then just massage it. And don't be afraid to show it to your network of people. We always say to ourselves, what God has for me is for me, but that's true. 
if you take something and put it right in front of a person that you've written and you think that, oh, this is my best writing, I can't show this to anybody because they might steal my idea. A person cannot steal your idea if it's for you. Awesome. You know, thank you, Dr. Shepard. I have a question that goes in retirement and money, and I want to kind of offer my observation. Once again, I'm a people watcher when it comes to watching. And I've learned, you know, to watch those that come from me and study. I love history and I love watching people and I've observed some things. I'm going to share that with you all. But before we get to my observation and sharing, I want to kind of ask this other question because it deals with the whole financial part of retirement. We haven't talked about that because sometimes when retirement, people always think about the money. They think about the 401ks. But then there's this other part because people are like, I will work, I won't work. But there's this other part, which is the elephant in the room, right? What is the best way to ensure financial independence during retirement? Now, I just want to let you guys know the backdrop is what Dr. Shepard said is true. We've only been talking about those people who really, really want to keep themselves busy and have a structure, things like that. But there's the other side of the audience that we got to speak to, too. So let's say the person wants to travel. The person wants to live their best life. What I would imagine that's in the back of your head is how do I have financial independence and I don't want to, you know, create a second, third, you know, career. That's a hard question, but I want to put it out for Dr. Green and Dr. Shepard. Well, that's a, that's a, uh, Dr. Shepard, you want to handle that one first? Since <laughs> okay, you've been, you've been in the, you've been in the work, for, you've been outside longer than I have, then I'll say, I'll give you my two cents. Oh boy, you punted that one, but okay. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, here's what I would say to that uh, question. You have to go and look at historical profile. You have to go to the end of the spectrum of what we're talking about retirement. And when you go and do your research at the end of the spectrum, you're gonna run into the following. You're gonna run into the fact that in 1935, the Economic Committee, Security Committee that was put together so that this nation would not become a, a nation of indigent people, that's how social security, that's how the 12.4% came into existence where you pay 6.2% as the employee and the employer plays 6.2%. Uh, and then they said, if we maintain that structure over the lifetime of this nation, they then matched that with actuarial data. They said, 65 will work and it'll work over a lifetime. But then they went back and said, okay, no, no, no. The 65 really will work for the baby boomers who were born between 1946 and 1954. And stay with me because I'm going somewhere with this. And then for those that were born 1955 to 1963, they said, okay, we got to inch this up a little bit because we got to keep them in the workplace a little while longer so therefore we got to move from 65 to 66. And then they said, what, we can really get this thing nailed down for this nation where the quality of life of its citizenry will be just fine. Then anybody born after 64, their full retirement is 67. All right, you have to anchor it there because now let's go back to the, the, the beginning. The baby boomers on the, on the early in 1946 to 1954. Calvin, those are the ones that 
travel. Those are the ones that say, I don't need any money. But the reason they say, can say that is because the government at that time required companies to maintain a three-legged stool for retirement. What was those three legs? Social security, pensions, and your personal savings. In 1974, that was passed what is called the Economic Employee uh, Pension Act. In that act, what was allowed to happen was corporations could move away from their pension plans. They could shut them down totally and then put on the backs of the employee, hey, we're gonna put this 401k out there for you and you gotta just put money into it, put money into it, put money into it and maybe if you stay out there 30, 35, 40 years, you will have a good nest egg, but you will not have a pension. You will not have a pension. And to make sure you wouldn't have a pension, they broke the backs of the unions. And when they broke the backs of the union, then we have what we have. So the young people, uh, Calvin, that are working today, the reason they are worried about whether or not they are going to be able to travel, whether or not they're gonna be able to have the money, is because of what I just said, okay? So now, what is the corollary to that and what do we need to do to make sure that we will be fine? Every African-American that I know, every black person I know, they should have a tight relationship with God. They should have a personal relationship with God because God said, I'm never gonna leave you nor forsake you. And he means that. It's not about your pension plan. It's not about this. It's not about that, it's about your relationship with God. And if you maintain that, he's gonna sustain you over your lifetime. You're gonna make sure that you have what you need. And then if you can teach your children and grandchildren to live off of what I call an 80-20 principle. Let me explain the 80-20 principle. As a child of God, your first 10% of income, I don't care where it comes from, you make sure that goes to tithes and offerings for the running of God's kingdom here on earth. You don't mess with that. The next 10% goes to yourself. You ought to pay yourself starting your retirement system. That money is put in an investment portfolio that you're not gonna be able to touch until you turn 65, until you turn 70. And then if we could learn how to live off of 80%, 80% living, I guarantee you that that third leg on the stool, which was taken away called pension, you won't have anything to worry about. Daryl, that's my, that's my take on this. Hey, Daryl, you punted. You see, see, see what you did, Daryl? That, that was a good thing. I'm a, hey, just, hey, like the, hey, it's just like the Cowboys like being in first place. <laughs> Do you think you want to add to that? Uh, you're going to need oh. some scripture. I'm just letting you know um, oh. if you go for it, Green. Well, much is given, much is required. <laughs> but, but I, but I think I, I think it goes back to being a saver, like you say, trusting, trusting God, ten percent. I think a lot of times we're out of debt. I just think we're just not. This is just different. Even you think about uh, those individuals uh, that have the pension and stuff. Now we got COVID. Now we're living longer. And so the kids, they're all excited about their parents are gonna pass. They're gonna get all their estate. And the parents have the last laugh because they're gonna be using that in assisted living. So I think it's very it's very complicated. I think we do need to plan whether you have little money or you have uh, a lot of money. 
I think I think it has to be deliberate now. I just I just think we have a lot more variables than our parents had in terms of figuring things out. And I think uh, live below your means. And uh, I, I think you just have to plan for it. But I don't. So here's what I say. And I, I got this from a, a preacher. I am. I am. Uh, I am prepared, but I'm not ready <laughs> so, to leave. So in, in saying that, we just I, I don't know what today the tomorrow will bring. But I just I just think we're out of out of out of out of sync. I think uh, you know I'm kind of you know we're in STEM, uh, uh, Dr. Shepherd. I mean we have you know it's been it's been good, but a lot of people don't have that. And I just think we have to be delivered, given given the amount of talent of whatever whatever we give it to you. I think we need to we need to be good stewards of it and and multiply it with what we have. We can't. I'm not. I mean I'm not a I'm not Bill Gates. But God has blessed me. I, I'm I'm trying to be a good steward of what He's given me. Awesome, awesome. And what I'll say, and I'd love to recap on that is, eighty twenty rule. Live below your means, and keep your relationship with God. I want to give a backdrop to this conversation as I begin to wrap up. And if we have any dying questions in the audience, please, um, we're going to get those. But I want to begin to wrap up because what I saw tonight is a lot of awesomeness. One thing I've seen as I talk to my friends and I'm in that generation X, right? Where we're kind of right at that point where we're kind of thinking about it, but we seem kind of, you know, we still seem a little far away, but we still can be a little nervous about it. And what Dr. Shepard is saying is really true. So you hear us talking about, we're never going to stop working is what we're saying. We're never planning on stopping working. And we're going to use technology and everything we can to keep us working as long as possible. But when it comes to that, 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 that elephant in a room, I like when Dr. Shepard sent out an email and got feedback. Some people are lonely. Some people are tired. Some people struggle with who they are. What's their identity? Some people may be starting a relationship with God. There is so many different things going on. As I begin to look at my friends, I say, well, you know, it can start with a hobby. It can start with having a passion that leads to what Dr. Green was saying, that purpose. But it hit me. Coming from where I come from in Texas, you work until you work until you work. And if you ain't working, you know what comes next. You just work until your last day. As I talk to my own dad, I encourage him to have hobbies, to have activities, to have things that make him smile outside of work. My grandmother did that with farming, with gardening, with livestock in Texas. I feel sad at times when I say that we, we, we've lost that thing that inspires us. For these two men, it's writing. It's building relationships. It's forever learning. It's representing HBCUs. It's representing, you know, their fraternities. But what is it for you? We all have to figure out that calling, that purpose. But it can start with a hobby. It can start with that thing that makes us smile. I want to say thank you to Dr. Green for being here tonight and for being the connector you are, for blessing us with an opportunity to have this conversation. Dr. Shepard. People have to go and watch your TED Talk in addition to your trailer. Thank you for making time to be here. I, I say this because it's public. 
The man was born in 1947, but he manages technology better than a 25-year-old. I've never seen that in my life. And I say kudos to you and God bless you for continuing to do what makes you passionate for our audience. Thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for giving us a chance. Thank you for letting us be goofy for, you know, geeking out. Y'all, that's just how we do. But feel free to come on back. Next week, what we have is a different show. And what we do here at Southern Soul is we cover all kinds of topics. Next week, we're going to, similar to back in the day, you used to call it a variety show. Well, here at Southern Soul, we cover a variety of topics. Next week, we're going to be covering a topic on relationships. We're calling it the consequences of love and relationships. Starring Dr. Jackson. And we're going to have some breakout sessions. We're going to talk about the mind, the body, the soul. Anything from the key life skills for building healthy relationships. To mental emotional health when it comes to relationships to expectations what do you do when you've been working and you have your career and you have your money and you have everything but you haven't figured out how to pull together that family part we're going to have a good time next week next up we have our own dj afro sheen who's going to take us out with one of her freestyle sets thank you all for being here with us tonight thank y'all for allowing us to run long this is the longest we've ever run, but the discussion was awesome. So thank you all for keeping us here this long. And I appreciate your time and I appreciate you for there being here. This show will be published two weeks from now. And the way you get access to it is just go to southernsoulpodcast.com. That's southernsoulpodcast.com. If you want to see any previous shows that we do, just go there now and you'll see the ones that we published. So look for this show to be published soon. Thank you all, DJ Afrosheen, you're up next. I got lost, I got kicked out. Yeah, I did a pause. Dr. Real yeah, Doctor Shepard has something, Calvin, trying to say. I, no, I got kicked out, and I, I just decided I'd come again. I didn't know if the, if it was over or not. I I just got kicked out. Oh, no worries. You you missed the closeout, but um, feel free to um, you know, say thank you, say goodbye to your people who came through. We were transitioning to the music set, but sorry you got kicked out. Feel free to say thank you or hello to the people who stopped by to see you tonight. I definitely want to uh, give my gratitude of thanks to uh, those that came as a result of, of uh, the invitation that we sent out and for them to take time out of their busy schedule to come. And I just had one closing comment that I wanted to make based on one of some input that I got from one of my colleagues when I sent my questions out. He came back and said this, and I'll leave this with all of you. He said, um, uh, Dr. Shepard, I use a quote 
from the late great NBA player Wilt Chamberlain. And that quote keeps me energized to stay engaged. And that quote is this, the problem with doing nothing is you never know when you're finished. And so that's what I'll leave with everybody tonight, uh, what Wilt said. So let's, let's be about doing something because otherwise we don't know when we finish. Thanks, Calvin, for the opportunity. Thank you, Dr. Shepard. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us at Southern Soul Livestream Talk Show. Join us weekly at soullivestream.com. If you're joining us live, we'll take a quick music break and then come back for discussion with the audience.